All right, welcome to episode 15 of The Plan. Uh, we are, for those, uh, anybody who hasn't been in this series with us before, what we've been doing is we started in September, and throughout this school year, we are telling the entire story of the Bible. And the goal is to link up so that resurrection, we cover the resurrection on Easter, which means that this Christmas season, we have been in Judges, Ruth, and First Samuel. And uh, it's not a typical place for Christmas, but uh, I am wearing my Christmas socks. Um, <laughs> They're red and green, and uh, we'll, we'll, it will connect with Christmas, I promise, but it is an unusual place to be uh, for Christmas. As we've been reading through the story of the Bible, what we've been focusing on is this one plot that unites all the stories in the Bible, because it is the story that we are a part of as Christians, and as we share our faith with others, it is the story that we invite others into. And so what we've been finding is the plot of this story is that it's the, God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. At the beginning of the story, God makes a world, and he puts people in it, and he tells them to rule on his behalf, and he comes down to live with them. And at the end of the story, the last place where we see humanity in Revelation is living on a new earth— in the presence of God, and they are reigning. It says they will reign forever. And so the story begins and ends in the same place. But as you probably know, humanity messed things up real early in the story, and so everything in between is is God's plan and God's work to restore his design for how our, what our lives and what this world is supposed to look like. And the place we're at in the story right now in 1 Samuel, what God has been doing is working through one particular family, the family of Israel, and he's using them as, as kind of a model so that as he gives them a particular place to live and he gives them a set of laws to live by and he comes down and lives with them in the land of Israel. And the idea is that all the other nations can look at Israel and by seeing what makes them different, they will understand who God is and they'll be able to enter into relationship with God because they'll understand him. The problem we've been encountering is that Israel's not very good at holding up their end of the deal. They did not drive out the Canaanites like God told them to, and so they've had all of these, four, these influences in Israel that have corrupted them. They have taken the easier path of more magical ways of thinking and more instant wish fulfillment uh, kinds of, of religious expression, and it's led them into really dark places. And, and the end of Judges is really dark, and then last week when we were in Samuel, we found it reached this, this really bad place where they were willing to gamble with the plan itself. They took the ark which is the presence of God, into battle with them to try and force God to win a battle for them. And God called their bluff. They lost the ark, and they lost access to God's presence. And even when the ark was returned to Israel, it didn't go back to the tabernacle. At this point in the story, it is in a city of, of Gibeonites who are not Israelites, and it's in their care. And so they've lost access to the presence of God. Last week, we found that that loss finally pushed the Israelites to truly repent. And so under the leadership of Samuel, they've been following God again. Uh, But time marches on, and Samuel is getting older. And so as we begin our story today, we're getting towards the end of Samuel's career as people are starting to get anxious about what happens next. So as I read this part of the story, I want you to remember using these coordinates to kind of keep your bearings in the story. The way you know how a story in the Bible fits into the overall story is by watching for the people. Who is it about? The place. Where uh, is their home? The presence. How can they meet with God? And purpose. What did God tell them to do? When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. 
The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old, (laughs) and you're very blunt, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Okay, we're going to pause here in the story, and we're going to get our bearings. So first of all, who is the story about? Where it's about Samuel and the Israelites. Samuel is the leader. He is the one that everybody goes to. There's a reason they go to Samuel to ask for a king, and they don't just appoint one themselves. Now, why is Samuel the leader? Samuel is the leader because he is the one that God chose. He's the one that God spoke through. And so far, every leader of Israel has been chosen this way. It's actually God who's leading, and they, the Israelites follow whoever God is talking to. Right? And so as you go throughout this, the stories that we've been in, uh, God will choose a person and speak through them, and the Israelites w- uh, hopefully will start to follow that person. And so that's why Samuel is in charge, because God has been speaking through him. Now, where is their home? Right now their home is the land of Israel, which is experiencing, the text hasn't shown us this yet, but I'll tell you, uh, that they're being invaded on both sides now. Last week we talked about the Philistine invasion that came from the coast. They were, they were Greeks who came down and, and made a landing on the coast. But now they're also being attacked on the eastern side by the Ammonites. So Samuel's getting older, and the military situation is getting worse, and people are starting to get anxious about the future. Now, how can they meet with God? This is a bit of a tricky question, because as far as we can tell, the things are still happening at the tabernacle the way they always have. People are still going there to worship. They're still putting the bread in the, inside, uh, in the presence and, and all the, inside the tabernacle and all that kind of stuff. But the ark is not there. And it's the ark that really is the focus of God's presence. When the ark and the tabernacle separate, God goes with the ark. And so they're still worshiping at the tabernacle, but because the ark is in exile, there's some sense that they're not fully reconciled with God, that he's not fully there. Um, they're, they're still kind of undergoing a trial separation, and something needs, they're waiting for God to do something to restore that relationship because it hasn't fully been mended. Finally, what did God tell them to do? There's two things that I want to highlight here, because he told them to do 613 things at this point in the story. But what we've been emphasizing so far is the fact that their plan, the, the way that Israelites succeed in battle is by being faithful to God. Their national survival depends on being faithful to God. If they're faithful to God, then he will protect them and give them victories in battle. And if they're not faithful to God, then they will fail. And so their main charge is to be faithful to God, right? So the question is, are they being faithful to God or not when they ask for a king? How does asking for a king fit into the law and the commands that they've been given? Well, there is actually a command that talks about uh, having, a God, having a king in Deuteronomy 17. It says, When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. Now it goes on to give them some rules about, you know, he has to be an Israelite, and here are the things he should do, and here are the things he shouldn't do. But the command about choosing a king is, when you ask for a king, make sure you follow the one God picks. Which is pretty standard in a contract like this, if it were with a human ruler, that if a people ask for a governor, the king gets to appoint the governor, right? So you respect God's authority. 
But notice, are they allowed to ask for a king? Yes. Are they even allowed to ask for a king like the other nations have? Yes. The rule is, appoint the king that God chooses. That's the rule. But it means that it's not necessarily wrong for them to ask for a king. So the question is, how is God going to respond to this request that they've made? knowing that there is a clause in the covenant that allows them to ask for a king. So let's get back into the story. When they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know that the, uh, what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So one of the things that you'll, if you do research on this part of the Bible, that you'll find is that scholars will disagree on whether the Bible is pro-monarchy or anti-monarchy. And actually what they'll say is, we think some, some parts of the Bible were written pro-monarchy, and some of them were written against it, and then they got woven together because the Bible seems to go back and forth. In fact, there have been many prophecies that we haven't covered in the Bible so far saying that there will be a king in Israel. So we know that God is planning for there to be a king, and yet he seems to be unhappy that they asked for a king, even though they have a clause in the contract that says they can't. So what's the problem? What's wrong with them asking? Well, God says that them asking means they're rejecting God as king. But that's not simply because they asked, because God gave them a clause where they could ask. So there's something about the manner or the circumstances under which they asked for a king that were wrong, right? This apparently was not the time or the reason to ask for a king. And we actually find out later on, we get another picture of why this is wrong, when Samuel does this thing that the Bible does a lot. He gives a speech, and he retells the story of Israel, if you, read, if you read through the Bible, you'll find that you keep, people keep retelling the whole story of Israel to put what's happening to them today in the context of what God's been doing, which is essentially what we're doing with the sermon series. And when you put this moment in context, you see the problem with them asking for a king at this moment in the story. It says, after Jacob entered Egypt, this is Samuel talking to Israel. He says, after Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and, to the hands of the, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord, and served the Baals and the Asherahs. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you, so that you lived in safety. But when you saw that Nabash, the king of the Ammonites, or Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Notice the pattern that he's setting up. Okay? So they went into Egypt, and they were slaves, and they called out to God, and God sent them a leader. And then they came into Israel, and, uh, into the land of Israel, and they, got, they had, were attacked by all these people, and they called out to God, and he sent them a leader. And now they're facing a new threat, and they called out for a leader. You notice the step that they skipped? 
their pattern has been they call out to God, God sends them a leader. They call out to God, God sends them a leader. Now, they actually still have a leader that God has appointed, but they ask for a king instead of calling out to God. Now, why is that? Now, you might think it's because, uh, so it's, it's really interesting. They ask for a king, and the defining thing about a monarchy seems to be that it's inherited, right? So it's stable because you, there's one family that's always in charge, and you know who the next guy's going to be. But it's interesting that the, problem, the reason why they ask for a king is because the people who are going to inherit power from Samuel can't be, aren't, aren't good judges, right? Samuel's sons are not good judges. So the problem is that the people that are going to inherit are not trustworthy, and they solve it by, cre- by asking for a monarchy that's, where it's always going to be inherited, right? So it's, it's not the system of government, really, that, they're not in, that they don't like. The problem is they don't like being directly responsible to God, right? They don't like the fact that they have to be faithful to God, and they have to call out to God, and they have to wait for God, and they have to trust in God to bring the right person at the right time. They want to know who's in charge. They want to know who's going to solve their problems, because they would rather deal with a person than with God. It's kind of like when you're on, in, you know, calling a customer service line, and you just want to talk to a human being, right? They just want to talk to a human being. They don't want to have to have that direct relationship with God, so the Israelites asked for a king because they would rather put their trust in a person than God. How about, I will trust the person, and the person can trust God, right? Let them do the hard work of being faithful in God, waiting for God, seeking his will, making hard decisions, and I'll just follow him because following a king, a human king, is way easier than following God myself. Even if I know that the king isn't going to rule as well as God would, it's easier for me. Right? And it's more reliable and it will feel more stable because the king's going to do what he does whether we're faithful or not. So let's, let's find some stability in human, human authority rather than following God. So obviously this is not a great choice, not a great decision that they're making. We can tell, but God tells Samuel to explain to them exactly why this is a bad idea. So Samuel goes back and told the words of the Lord to the people who are asking for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you that day. So he's saying, look, Putting a, this, this person that you put in charge of you, is, he's going he's gonna to enslave you. He's going to tax you. He's going to draft your kids. And notice the language that he's using when he says, uh, you will cry out for relief because of the king. That's what they have to do because of the oppressors that are attacking them. So he's saying, you're going to have to ask for deliverance from your own leadership. You're, you're bringing oppression into your own family. But you asked for it, so I'm not going to deliver you from the monarchy. You're stuck with kings if you do this. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Okay, does God want them to have a king under these circumstances? Does God think they're making a wise choice right now? But... God has delegated authority to them because they are in covenant with him. That means they have the ability to make decisions, and God, in his wisdom that I don't entirely understand, will actually give them what they ask for, what they are able to ask for in 
in the covenant. So they've invoked this king clause at not, for bad reasons at the wrong time, and yet God honored the covenant against his better judgment and appointed them a king. They are doing this over God's objections. Okay? So, the next part of the story gets complicated and weird, uh, so I'm going I'm to abbreviate it. Basically, at the beginning of chapter 9, we're introduced to a new character. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. This is really important. When the Bible describes what a person looks like, it's important, because it doesn't do that very often, okay? So, Saul is handsome, and tall, and wealthy, right? Saul is a specimen. Saul is a catch. Saul is, he's Gaston, right? Right, like no one fights like Gaston. Like he's, he's my what a guy that Gaston. He's especially good at expectorating. Like he is, he's impressive. It's a Disney reference. It means spitting. Anyway, but he, uh, Saul is an impressive guy, right? And so Samuel says, or God says to Samuel when he encounters Saul, he says, that's the guy. That's the guy I want. So anoint him. So Samuel goes to Saul and they, uh, privately and anoints him. And then he calls all Israel together so they can publicly see God choose a king. So they all get together and they start throwing dice. They cast lots, which is a way of finding God's will because God's the only one in control of the dice, essentially. And so they narrow down uh, what tribe the king is going to be from, what clan, what family, and they finally narrow down Saul. Okay? He happens to be hiding in the luggage at the time, but they pull him out. And it says, as Saul stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, long live the king. Why do the people like Saul? Notice what he did there, what Samuel, how Samuel uh, sold them on Saul. He didn't, he didn't say, here's his political platform. He didn't say, here's his executive experience. He didn't even say, here are his positive character traits. He said, hey, look how tall this guy is. Right? Like, like you can see him from far off. He'd probably be easy to follow in a battle, right? But So basically, Samuel knows his audience, apparently, because they say, yeah, sure, awesome. That's, you know, when I asked for a king, that's the guy I had in mind. Like, that's what I pictured in my head was a, a Gaston-type guy, just tall and strong and, and rich. Like, that's, what, that's what we wanted, right? So the Israelites accepted God's candidate because he looked impressive to them. Yeah, he, he fits the bill of what we think a king should be. A king should be tall and handsome and rich. So they make Saul king, most of them. There are some people who aren't so sure. And Saul gets an opportunity to prove himself. So there's an attack by the Ammonites on a a city on the eastern side of Israel. And Saul, like, browbeats the Israelites into following him. And he leads them into battle. And they attack at night. And they just crush the Ammonites. They drive them away. It says they were so scattered that no two of them were together after the battle. Just crushes them, right? And so everybody says, wow, that king thing really worked, didn't it? Like, we must have made a great decision because that was exactly what we were hoping the king would do, is he would come in and just, just destroy our enemies. And so they call a party. They have everybody gather in a city 
uh, to, to uh, reaffirm the kingship and say, yeah, this, this experiment is great. We're definitely committed to this kingdom thing, right? So they have a party all about how awesome it is to have a king and how great this victory was that he won and how hopeful their future is. And Samuel is the keynote speaker, which was a mistake because Samuel does not give a very rousing speech. In fact, you know that passage that I read to you that tells the story of Israel and puts in context just why it was wrong for them to ask for a king? Yeah, that's, this, that's what he says at this party. They are at the inauguration party, and, and Samuel stands up and says, yeah, remember how you asked me for a king even though God didn't want you to? Remember how rebellious and wrong that was? In fact, let's pick up with the last verse that I read to you. He said, When you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the, the Lord has set a king over you. Let's pause there. Who chose Saul? At no point in this story did any Israelite say, other than Samuel, who's speaking on behalf of God, say, yeah, let's have Saul for our king. Until Saul had already picked him out, right? Like they didn't, nobody voted for him. Nobody nominated him. It was all Samuel's doing on behalf of God, right? And yet Samuel says, this is the king you have chosen. Why does he say that? Because God has delegated them this authority, right? So this wasn't when God was going to pick a king, and this, wasn't, and this also wasn't who God was going to pick as king. This is the kind of king they wanted. They weren't just asking for a king. They were asking for a king who would do a certain kind of thing that would solve a certain kind of problem in a certain kind of way. They wanted a king who would come in and lead them and fight their battles for them and, and deliver them in these victories. They wanted a shortcut to victory, and that's the kind of king they got. That's why he says, this is the one you have chosen. And remember, he said, this is what the king is going to do. Remember all those terrible things the king is going to do? That's because God was going to pick for them a king that would do what they wanted, and that kind of king would do all of these things. So they've chosen the wrong kind of king. They've gotten the wrong kind of king because they chose the wrong reasons and the wrong time to ask for a king. And just to make sure that they're clear how wrong this is, Samuel has done a pretty good job of metaphorically reigning on their parade. Now he is literally going to reign on their parade. Now then, stand still, he says, and see the great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called on the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people all said to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die. For we have added all, to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. So here at the party to celebrate the monarchy is when the Israelites finally realize that they never should have asked for a monarchy. Right? This is when they finally realize, because they ignored Samuel before, now they realize because of this thunderstorm. Now why is this thunderstorm a big deal? Well, number one, it's not the time when it normally rains, okay? Like if I were to summon a thunderstorm right now in December in the Willamette Valley, no one's impressed, right? If I summoned one in July or August, that might be more impressive, right? If I was able to predict one. But here's the thing. It's not just the fact that he can summon a storm. I actually had a hunch about this, so I called my father-in-law, who's a farmer, and I asked him, hey, 
What happens if you get a thunderstorm when the, at, during wheat harvest time, when the wheat is standing and ready to be harvested? He said, bad things. It is not good to get a thunderstorm on standing wheat because, first of all, it's going to get knocked down, which makes it hard to harvest. Second of all, if it gets knocked into the mud, it's going to rot, and it's also going to lose its volume. He said, two weeks of rain, and you've basically lost your crop. So this is not just a light show. This is not just special effects. This is a potential judgment that they're scared about. That's why they take this so seriously. Like He's endangering their livelihood when he calls this storm. So this is really serious, right? They have messed up. So what is God going to say now? Because this is usually when, when a prophet would announce a punishment. Like, here's what you've done wrong. Here's what God's going to do. What does he say next? Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. So what God is saying here in this moment is basically, look, you made a bad choice, right? Now you understand this is a bad choice. But you made it, and you're going to have to deal with the consequences. But as you move forward... Don't turn away from me, because I'm not turning away from you. I chose you, I was happy to choose you, and you're still my people. So stick with me, and I will stick with you, and we can get through this. Because he could have said, you know what, this isn't when I wanted to have a king show up, so you guys made a big mistake, I'm done. Um, Have fun with Saul, I'm going to start a new people over here. But he said, I know you've made a mistake. And we're going to have to deal with this. But stick with me, and I'll stick with you, and we will get through this. So God committed to working with Israel in their new political arrangement, even though it was an unwise political arrangement. They are still his people, and he's still going to work with them. It does not take long for God to be proven right in his appraisal of uh, the monarchy. Because the first thing Saul does is awesome, right? He, he is exactly the kind of king that they want, and that provides good fruit. In the next story, in chapter 13, Saul is exactly the kind of king they want, and it's not a good thing. So he goes to fight the Philistines on the other side, and they, they for, the, he calls the army together, and they're getting ready to fight the Philistines, but they need to have sacrifices first. That's part of the process. You sacrifice, get, you make sure that you're good with God before you go into battle. Everybody did it. And, but Saul is not the prophet, He's the king. So he has to wait for Samuel to come and do the sacrifices. Saul waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. This is not a good idea. He does not have the authority to do this. Um, And right now, he's supposed to be trusting in God and the person that God is speaking through, which is Samuel, right? And his response when he starts to get afraid because his army is leaving is he's going to take action and do whatever it takes to keep his army together because that's what he's actually trusting in, which means he's being exactly the kind of king the Israelites wanted, right? A decisive king, an aggressive king, a king who will take action, right? But he's being unfaithful. So just as he finished making the offering— Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done, said Samuel. 
Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Philistines will come down against me again and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. That language in the last verse is really passive. Like, I couldn't, I, I did it super reluctantly. I didn't want to. I waited as long as I possibly could and I just, I was so reluctantly, I finally did the sacrifice. Um, Saul is really good at trying to deflect blame. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command that the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. Now that may seem like kind of a harsh punishment that he's saying like, well, now you're done. You made this mistake and you're done. But I don't think that, first of all, I don't think Samuel is punishing him so much as I think Samuel is acknowledging the kind of king that Saul is being and what will happen if you try and be that kind of king over God's people. This is not the kind of kingdom God wants, and so this approach is not going to last. If this is how you're going to rule, it's not going to work out because God is ultimately the king, and this isn't how he wants his kingdom run. So this will not endure. So what, what's happening here is that Saul quickly proved to be the wrong kind of king for God's people. Exactly the kind of king they wanted, exactly the kind of king they asked for, but not the kind of king that God wanted for his people. And this, this small, seemingly small mistake uh, shows, is a very bad sign for the future, and we'll get into in later sermons how, how bad that gets but we can see that he is not the kind of king that God wants. And at this point, if you don't know the story, you should be afraid because now they're committed, right? They're committed to a monarchy and the guy that they, they put in as their king is not the right kind of leader. You can't, there's no recall, there's no recalls for kings, right? There's no term limits, like they're stuck with him and that's scary, right? Except that God is not done. And there's one more thing that Samuel says. He says, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now, as I studied for this, I realized this is the first time that you see that phrase, a man after God's own heart. And I always was told and, and thought and then taught that that means that he, his heart was patterned after God's heart. That he, he valued what God valued. And then that means, we're talking about David, David is patterned after God's heart. That's not what that Hebrew phrase means. What that Hebrew phrase means is that he's, uh, to be after God's own heart is to be the one that God wants. It, God's choice. Because Saul was not God's choice. So what he's saying is, God has already looked and found the kind of person that he's always wanted to be king the person who will lead God's people the way he wants them led, he's already got him in the wings because you didn't prove to be that kind of king. So he already has someone, the next person in line. So what's happening is that God already had a plan to redeem the kingdom through a king of his choosing. He's going to redeem the kingdom, meaning their choice to have a king and to convert from a group of tribes into a kingdom, that was a bad choice. But God is going to redeem that choice by replacing their poor choice of king with his choice of king, and to turn the kingdom into a good thing, into a part of his plan. So there's redemption in the fact that they have made a bad decision to yoke themselves to a bad king, but God is, still, God is not done, 
And he's going to keep working through them. And by, by, finding, by giving them the right king, he's going to be able to redeem this whole situation. How that happens is next week's sermon. Right. But it's important for us to recognize that that's what he's doing. That this was not a time when God wanted them to have a king. Saul was not their choice. Um, and God is able to redeem that situation. And the reason why that's important is because what we're talking about today is not just about how some ancient uh, nation converted from a tribal confederacy into a decentralized monarchy. We, there, a, lot of, a lot of ancient kingdoms went through political transitions and we don't care about those, right? Um, this matters because it is part of the story of God's relationship with his people and because we interact with the same God today. And so we can learn from this story how, how we interact with God today. And so there's a couple of things that I want us to learn from this. Number one, God has given us the freedom and authority to make wrong and foolish decisions. The fact that we rule on God's behalf means that God will honor bad decisions that we make. Anybody want to argue with me that we have the freedom to make bad decisions? I mean, is, is there an easier case to make than that we have the ability to make bad decisions? In fact, that's scary, isn't it? I think that's a big motivator behind why they asked for a king and why we do similar things today because the Israelites knew we could make bad decisions. How about, we, how about I just don't have to make the decision? Let me follow that guy and he'll make the decision and he'll be the one that follows God and I follow him because that's way easier. I don't want to run the risk of making bad decisions, of following the wrong people, of doing the wrong thing. And I think we, we find ways to do that a lot in our lives, even as Christians, where we'll try and put off responsibility for following Jesus. But it, it's because we realize we have the ability to mess things up. Now, some decisions we make have very limited consequences. You know, you stay up late, too, too late one day, it takes you a couple of days to get your sleep back on schedule. Um, you get a, an ill-advised haircut, it takes you a few months to grow your hair back out, right? Other decisions we make um, are harder, you know? We go down a career path that we find isn't, wasn't actually the right, the right decision to make. Um, we, you know, we, we get married before we really know the person. We uh, get drunk and get behind the wheel of a car. Um, there are decisions that we make that have really long consequences and that we deal with for a very long time. And it's really easy for us when we get into those places to, to feel abandoned. Partly because it's common that other human beings will abandon us when we make bad decisions, right? Or when we're in seasons of struggling with bad decisions. Um, or the consequences of other people's bad decisions. And we feel like, we might feel like, okay, I went down this wrong path. God didn't want me to go down this path, so he must be done with me. Right? I'm, I'm on the wrong trajectory. I'm outside of God's plan. So he just must be, he must be thinking, wow, that, was, that person is dumb and I'm done with them. Right? We feel like God can't use us, like God doesn't want to use us, like God has left us to our mistakes. And what I find so encouraging in this story that's just kind of hidden in the first half of Samuel where we don't tend to spend much time is the fact that God continues to work with and through us in the fallout of our bad decisions. What God told the Israelites when they, had, when they realized how bad this decision was, he told them, stick with me because I'm going to stick with you. Don't give up. Don't abandon me. Now, it doesn't mean that you're not going to have to deal with the fallout, deal with the consequences of this bad decision because the Israelites were going to experience consequences. 
right? They, they, we're going to cover them next week. Like, bad things happened because of this, how the monarchy started. And yet, God wasn't done with them. God wasn't abandoning them to those consequences. God was committed to them because he had been pleased, it says, to choose them. He was glad that they were his people, and he wanted to continue to work with them and to continue to work through them and walk with them through the consequences of their bad decisions. If God wasn't willing to walk through people in the consequences of their bad decisions, he would have no people to walk with. Because we all make bad decisions. And so if you're in that place where you have made a bad decision, you're living in the consequences of a bad decision, and you feel like God must not want anything to do with me, that is not true. He wants to walk with you, and he will stick by with you, and he is glad to choose you to be among his people. And perhaps the most hopeful thing that we see in this story is the fact that God has the power and the compassion to redeem us out of our bad decisions. to redeem us out of our bad decisions. What that means, and, and this is something that can be uh, touchy to articulate. We actually, and we were, when we were recording the podcast for this last week, we had a long conversation about kind of articulating redemption because it doesn't mean that our bad decisions were, will secretly be revealed to be good decisions all along. Sometimes we think like God turns, does good things with bad things, so it turns out God wanted you to do that thing all along because it was going to lead to this thing. That's not what redemption means. What redemption means is that God can build good on top of bad. What redemption means is that God can take broken people and broken situations and genuinely bad things, and he can make good win over them. It doesn't mean that the thing that you're suffering through was secretly a good thing and you should get over it. It doesn't mean that our suffering isn't real or that it doesn't matter or we should just feel like it's actually a good thing and we don't know how yet. It means that God takes the damage that human beings do and he can repair it and he can build over it and his word is what endures and his decisions are what endures and what lasts is the good of God's plan. Because they made the wrong decision to start the monarchy then and to start the monarchy for those reasons and yet God was able to turn that into something good in the short term and in the long term. Because he says he's going to make the way for a king of, after his own heart. And in the short term, we know that's David. But the fact is that the, David isn't the answer to all of Israel's problems. David has fallen too. David has his own issues that in some ways are worse than Saul's. But that promise doesn't end with David. Because that process of God redeeming Israel's bad decision continues on into the New Testament. When an angel appears to a teenage girl and tells her, don't be afraid, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. The birth of the king who is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise. The ultimate fulfillment of his promise to redeem us. God's plan led all the way. His plan in, in resolving the issues they created in this story led all the way to the birth of Jesus who offers redemption to everyone. For every bad decision. 
for every, every bad experience, for every pain, for every, everything, he offers redemption to each one of us. That's the message of Christmas. That in the midst of darkness, light dawns, and there is hope. And that hope is what will endure and conquer. So as we close, I'm going to ask you to um, consider some next steps. Maybe God is calling you to give your life to Jesus today. Maybe you haven't given your life to him, and today is the day he's put it on your heart. Do it today. There is no better time than right now to give your life to Jesus. If you're here, you can come forward during the final song, and if you're online, you can get in touch with the church or get in touch with a Christian that you trust. We'll also encourage you on your Connect card, if you want to get to know more about this congregation and what it means to be a part of this congregation, you can check the box to join a Connect class. We have those uh, every once in a while on a Sunday afternoon. We'll get in touch with you and schedule that with you. And you can find out more about who we are and what we do. And finally, if you're part of the church, we encourage you to get more plugged in by joining a small group and a service team. Small groups are how we build relationship with each other and get to know each other better and go through this journey together. And service teams are how we give back. So I'd encourage you to consider what is the next step God is inviting you to take today as we stand and sing our final song.